Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up this week, how a crafty caterpillar fools ants into treating it like royalty. These caterpillars have evolved to make the same sounds as the ants make, and so what they're able to do is to fool the ants into thinking that they're dealing with a queen and so they treat it like a queen. How increasing ocean acidity could stop fish from finding their way home. But the problem is it now seems that as the acidity of seawater increases, fish might actually lose their sense of smell and have trouble finding their way home. And how predictions of sea level rise may have forgotten about gravity. Everything with mass attracts everything else with mass. So the 22 million billion tonnes of ice in this ice sheet are going to be attracting the seawater around them. So this sort of forms a bulge and pulls the seawater around it. And losing that bulge would mean greater sea level rise affecting coastal areas worldwide. We'll also hear about a urine-based test for coronary artery disease and we'll discover the earliest evidence for complex life found on Earth, found in rocks up to 750 million years old. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have discovered the most incredible piece of evolution, which is also nature's most outstanding example of adoption, I'd like to think. This is Jeremy Thomas and his colleagues. They're at Oxford University, and they've been studying a particularly rare species of blue butterfly. It's called Maculinia rebeli. And this species of butterfly gets its caterpillars inside the nests of ants, And once they're inside the ant's nest, the ants look after the caterpillar. In fact, it does 98% of its growth inside the ant's nest. And somehow it persuades the ants to look after it, to nurture it, and when times are tough, even to feed their own brood, their own ant grubs, to that caterpillar so that it survives. And the big mystery was, well, how does it persuade ants that would normally eat caterpillars to treat it like a friend, not a foe? And initially, scientists realised that the caterpillars were beginning to smell like ants. What they do is to secrete various chemicals through the skin of the caterpillar, which mimics the smells made by ants, so ants realise that they're probably friend and not foe. But that couldn't be the whole story, because these caterpillars were being treated almost like royalty inside the ants' nests. So what the researchers did was to thread a very tiny series of microphones into real ants' nests that had these caterpillars in them and to listen to the sounds that the ants make and also listen to the sounds that the caterpillars make. And what they discovered is that the ants talk to each other with little clicking noises that they make by grating together two rough surfaces on their abdomens. And the sounds that the queen ants makes are slightly and subtly different than the worker ants, which is how ants tell queen from worker ant. But then they recorded from the caterpillars as well and showed that these caterpillars have evolved to make the same sounds as the ants make. And so what they're able to do is to fool the ants into thinking that they're dealing with a queen and so they treat it like a queen. And this is an amazing example of convergent evolution where because these uh, ants and these butterflies live in the same sorts of areas on Earth, they've slowly evolved and adapted to utilise one another And this particular species has gone one step further. And we're very lucky because uh, Jeremy Thomas sent me some of the recordings of the sounds that they got during the experiment. So here is the sound of the ant queen. (laughs) 
So that's it scraping the back end of the abdomen against itself. So that's the queen. Let me just play you the, the caterpillar by comparison. So what you'll notice is it does sound subtly different, but if you digitally analyse those sound traces, what you find is that they are extremely significantly similar in terms of statistics and the frequency distributions and the uh, types of sounds and the order they're coming in. And this is enough to fool the ants into thinking that they're dealing with another ant, not a caterpillar. Have they tried playing these sounds back and... Uh uh, do the uh, ants do the same thing to a microphone that's making the same noise? That, uh, Absolutely. They... In fact, that's how they prove that's what's going on because they made the recordings from microphones threaded inside the nest and then when they played this back through a little speaker near some ants, they looked at what impact it had on the ants and when they played sounds from the caterpillar, they behaved in an identical way as when they played sounds recorded from a queen ant, which is that they have this on-guard behaviour. They flock to the speaker, they stand up on their hind legs, they open their jaws and they put their antennae to attention and if anything comes near, they attack it. So it's almost like the caterpillar's got even better at recruiting this kind of behaviour than the actual queen ant itself. It's extraordinary. Isn't nature just fantastic? And I'm going to stick with nature for my first story. And if you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, you'll know that Nemo the clownfish got lost and he had to try and find his way back home, back to his home reef. And now it seems that the Disney animators might have been onto something because a study published in the journal PNAS, led by Philip Munday from James Cook University in Queensland, Australia, found that clownfish may indeed get lost if the oceans become more acidic. And that's likely to happen as more carbon dioxide enters the atmosphere and dissolves in the sea, forming carbonic acid. Now, we already know that many coral reef fish spend the first few weeks of life as teeny tiny larvae drifting in the open ocean. And we also know that they then follow their noses and their ears, sniffing out and listening to the sounds that lead them back to the reefs where they were born, which is, I think, another incredible part of nature. Absolutely wonderful. But the problem is, it now seems that as the acidity of seawater increases, fish might actually lose their sense of smell and have trouble finding their way home. Now, Monday and his team looked at newly hatched clownfish larvae. They put them in the, in the laboratory and gave them a choice of swimming in water in a tank that was either, that was containing two different chemicals. And in seawater of normal acidity, the clownfish preferred to swim in a plume of water that smelt of rainforest trees, which you might say, why on earth would they do that? But in the wild they actually tend to live on reefs that surround vegetated islands. So by following the smell of the rainforest trees, that would take them back to their homes. What happened was when they increased the acidity in these laboratory conditions the clownfish instead chose to swim in a plume of water that smelled of swamps. A nasty smell, actually, that we would probably would all avoid, but certainly clownfish normally avoid these types of smells and don't swim towards areas um, of swamps. Now, it might not sound like a huge difference, swamps or rainforests, but if wild fish really start to lose their ability to find the right sort of habitat, it could really spell disaster for entire populations and ecosystems. So I'm afraid this study really spells out... Another gloomy forecast for the changes we might see as carbon dioxide continues to build up in the atmosphere. I guess the one advantage that fish have is they produce billions and billions of millions of young or thousands of young, and therefore if a few of them can find their way home, those are the ones which are going to be able to breed, and so you might quite quickly evolve fish which can manage it, if, so, if, if only, only a very small portion can find their way home. You're right, actually. I mean, there is, they do have that, that ability to produce lots of offspring, and they, and they expect a lot of them to die, because if they didn't, then we would have, the oceans would be completely full of fish. So there is that possibility. So let's hope there is some hope <laughs> that the fish will be able to cope. One quick question, Helen. 
the levels of acidity change that they inflicted on these fish, are they thought to be realistic in terms of what we think the environment will turn into subsequently uh, if we carry on business as usual releasing CO2? I believe so. I mean, we already know that in the last 200 years, the acidity of the oceans has already increased um, significantly. I think Decreased. It's decreased, sorry, by about point, point 0.1 of a pH Acidity's unit. gone up, pH gone down. That's right, mustn't get those two mixed up. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> so the pH has gone uh, gone down and the acidity has increased um, already. And so therefore, we've there are models that predict that by I think they were looking at in this scenario how it looks like it will be in uh, the year 2100 so we already know it's changing and it probably will continue changing obviously we might not know exactly how but um, certainly those changes are happening certainly worrying though isn't it mm. Dave I've got another story on global warming now if the world's going to warm up um, then it's quite obvious the sea's going to rise um, as the water warms up it expands it takes up more space so the seas are going to get higher and as ice on continents melts it's going to dump more water into the ocean again making them higher now many models predict the melting of the west antarctic ice sheet which is a big ice sheet on the sort of pointy bit of antarctica which sticks up north um, and this is a predicted to produce about a five meter rise in sea levels but researchers from the university of toronto have noticed these models haven't taken something quite important into account this is gravity. Everything with mass attracts everything else with mass. So they're all pulling each other, that's how planets orbit um, stars, etc., etc. Um, so the 22 million billion tonnes of ice in this ice sheet are going to be attracting the seawater around them. So this sort of forms a bulge and pulls the seawater around it. So when the ice sheet melts, you not only get all that water pouring out everywhere, but that bulge, there's less ice pulling all the, water, all the seawater towards it, so the bulge is going to drop as well. So what sort of difference will that translate into? Is this a trivial effect or, or is that a lot of water that's being locked away by gravity as well as ice? Well, sort of, I think overall, over the whole Earth, that's probably going to, on average, produce that half a metre effect. Um, but it's also going to have another effect, which is you've moved, you're moving a whole lot of mass, which is off-centre on one side of the Earth. And the Earth is a gyroscope. And when you do that, you can actually move the axis of rotation of the Earth. So you'll adjust how the Earth is spinning? Yeah. What will that do to the distribution of land and water well, on Earth? Th this means that the water is going to get more deeper in some places. So places like North America, it's going to get extra deep. So it's going to be, rise an, another one and a half metres on top of the five metres, so six and a half metres. Um, whereas places like around Antarctica, um, where, you, where this boulder is dropping away and it's going to it's almost going to fall it's only going to rise a little bit far less than you'd have expected it's amazing to think that we didn't think of that though isn't it because people have even used the same phenomenon to explain mars because on mars you can see these ancient tide marks going back four billion years or so and they show huge tides on mars but they're also in the wrong place to a certain extent and scientists realize that the huge mass of mon of olympus mons the biggest volcano in the solar system which is on mars had caused the planet to change its axis of rotation very slightly and thus pulling the crust all in one direction and making these tides appear much higher than they originally were this is the sort of same phenomenon but because it's close to home, I guess we totally overlooked it. And the other thing is, it's probably a much smaller effect than Olympus Mons, but because the oceans are 5,000 metres deep, you only need a sort of one part in a 1,000, one part in 10,000 effect to have a notable effect for us living right on the coast. What about this part of the world and, and East Anglia? We're already just about above sea level. The Netherlands, the same story. Will they be impacted? Um, I th around here, they reckoned it was probably maybe only about a tenth of a metre on top of... I mean, the five metres is a big problem. It might be a little bit more, but we're probably, from this effect, not doing too badly. 
It's all a bit worrying. Well, I'm going to take my piece, my news this now onto the medical world and news that researchers have reported a new way of diagnosing whether someone is likely to develop coronary artery disease, or CAD, by testing the chemicals present in their urine. Well, CAD is a major cause of death around the world and currently the only way to diagnose it is to conduct an angiogram and that's expensive and it's invasive. It involves really injecting dye into the blood to show up on x-rays um, how badly the blood vessels around the heart are getting lined by fatty deposits or plaque and that they can build up and restrict and eventually block the flow of blood to the heart causing a heart attack. Well now a team of researchers led by Carl Heinz Peter from the Baker Heart Research Institute in Melbourne Australia have identified 17 specific peptides and they're the molecules that make up proteins in the urine of people who are diagnosed as having CAD using angiograms. Well this study is published in the Journal of Proteome Research and it describes also how they um, actually carried out a blind test of these peptides. They first screened the urine of a group of volunteers and then subsequently gave them angiograms to see if they were right about the prediction of whether they had CAD and they found that they were right about 84% of the time the urine actually backed up the test that they found the, the, the diagnosis based on the angiograms. Do they know why these things change in the urine? when you have blocked arteries. What's going on? Yeah, well, they actually found this direct link, which is very neat, between the peptides and CAD because the researchers also looked at the same... and uh, They found the same chemicals in the fatty plaques that line the blood vessels of people who have the condition. So that's presumably why the peptides are finding their way via the blood into the stream of urine, and that's what you can test for. So it's pretty early days now to see this test being rolled out, but I think it really points the way towards perhaps a cheap and non-invasive test that could help pick it up much earlier because the key is that if you know you've got this condition early, you can do things, change your diet and your lifestyle, really to help try and control the development of the disease. Certainly an important area to look at. Thank you, Helen. Now, also in the news this week, researchers have found evidence of the earliest animal life on Earth, and it shows that complex life was actually flourishing here much earlier in Earth's history than we first thought. And Dr Gordon Love, who's at the University of California at Riverside, has uncovered the chemical fingerprints of sponges, which are thought to be one of the first forms of animal life, and he found it in rocks that are up to 750-odd million years old. Hello, Gordon. Yeah, hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us, what have you actually done? So what we did was uh, we looked in, uh, through rocks in uh, South Oman, and we have an unusually continuous sequence of rocks and an opportunity for looking at the geobiology of this time and uh, we found a, a continuous 100 million year record of sponges going from a time known as the cryogenian which has been associated with uh, two major glacial episodes and extending right up into the early Cambrian period. So when, where did you get these rocks from? Uh, how did you come by them? This came out as part of a we were fortunate that we were working with an oil company uh, in Oman, Petroleum Development Oman, and uh, it's just currently the only area in the world where people are actually commercially producing uh, vast amounts of oil from rocks of, of this age, but through our contacts with the oil company, then we had access to very pristine material uh, from drill core, so that became very, very important uh, in having the, this stretch of time and also the uh, to the fact that these were very thermally well-preserved uh, rocks that we were dealing with. If you look at the fossil record, though, and this frustrated Charles Darwin, that life appears to pop into existence about 540-odd million years ago, because prior to then, presumably, there weren't enough animals with hard body parts that could be fossilised, you've presumably run into the same problem. So how do you know that you've got sponges going back 750 million years? So these are one of a number of steroid structures that we detected and the precursors of these molecules of uh, the sterols are very uh, specific uh, to, to a class of sponge called demosponges. And actually sponges make 
a wide wide range of really unusual uh, natural products, which which really interest the medical field as well. But but in this case, uh, despite about four decades of research, then these have never cropped up. These sterile precursors have never cropped up in uh, single-celled organisms. I see. So what you're saying is that you're able to unlock from the rocks chemical fingerprints, if you'd like, molecules made by those early sponges 750 million years ago, that when the animals died and were locked away in those rocks, although the animals, the vestiges of them physically are gone, their chemical legacy lives on, and that's what you can detect. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, this is an important factor with uh, Darwin. The, the puzzle about the lack of information is that I think if you look at smaller and smaller scale, then... then there's a tangible record for, for animals significantly predating the Cambrian explosion. And just tell us a little bit about the technique to get these molecules out of the rock. So you get your rock sequence from the oil driller. How do you then get out of the rocks the chemicals from the sponges? And how do you know which rocks they've come from and that they are actually made by the early sponges all that time ago? Okay, so we, we did a, a couple of approaches. Uh, so the conventional way in organic geochemistry is to powder the rock after you've cleaned and removed the outer parts do some sort of uh, solvent extraction technique, concentrate up uh, the steroid components in a fraction and, and analyze these by gas chromatography mass uh, spectrometry. So we found uh, really abundant amounts of these steroids in all the different rock formations that we looked at. But to confirm uh, that we were actually, it wasn't just coming from migrated oil, perhaps uh, which resides in the, in the younger part uh, of, of the section, then uh, what we did was we isolated uh, what is an organic polymer. So the bulk of sedimentary organic matter is actually insoluble and it can't, it can't migrate anywhere and it makes up a large macromolecule. And we, we basically broke chemical bonds by using a, a technique where we heat up samples with uh, high hydrogen gas pressure. And so when we looked again at the steroid uh, composition, we saw that, yeah, again, these, these uh, sponge steroids were abundant in our products. and in that way, we could more confidently equate the age of the markers with, with the age of, of the rocks, which we've got from uh, uranium-lead uh, isotope dating. So this shows you that those rocks of that age had complex animals like sponges living in them. Why do you think that uh, they're there? And what does this tell us about the origin of animal complex animal life on Earth around that time? Yeah, I think, uh, so most of the rocks, the depositional environment that we're looking at when we look at these rocks on Oman is, is shallow marine waters. And I think originally the simplest animals like sponges would have colonized the seafloor on, on the shallow continental shelf. And it could have been tens of millions of years later before they could pervade into deeper water environments. But I think it's telling us that at this time in terms of the environment, there was at least there was finite levels of dissolved oxygen near the seafloor at least on the shallowest uh, water environments. And, can, and does it fit with what we understand was happening elsewhere on Earth at the time? Because usually when you see an explosion of some evolutionary process, there's something going on in the climate or in the Earth's other processes. So can you marry this observation with anything else going on at the same time that might explain what you're seeing? Yeah, the huge thing that's going on at the time is now we've pushed this back, the first appearance into the, the time frame of... Uh, the two vast neoproterozoic glaciation events. And uh, my feeling on this is, so I've looked at many rocks uh, of age which are older than the first glacial event, and I have never seen uh, any convincing evidence uh, for sponge biomarkers. And uh, 
I think that uh, these major glacial events radically altered ocean chemistry in, in the aftermath by shutting down a lot of ocean-atmosphere interaction. And it seems, although we're trying to still get a handle on how exactly the chemical composition changed, it seemed that they opened up uh, avenues for new niches, for, especially for organisms which, which could filter feed on, on the seafloor. So it's amazing to think that you could get complex life out of an ice age. Thank you very much. That was Gordon Love, who is from the University of California, Riverside, and he's got a paper in this week's edition of the journal Nature explaining how he has found evidence for the signature of life in rocks going back up to 750 million years old. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. Well, that's all we have for the Naked Scientist News Splash, which this week featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Dave Ansell and our guest Gordon Love and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this News Splash, then why not check out the Naked Scientists podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from around the world, your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home each week. You can visit us online at www.thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with a another roundup next week the naked scientists news flash reacting to the world's best science for more information look us up online at nakedscientists.com <laughs>